for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Nicole Wegman, founder and CEO of nine-year-old Ring Concierge. The DTC fine jewelry company sells bespoke bridal jewelry and more accessible styles. We're in the middle of a bridal boom, plus fine jewelry has fared well during the pandemic, so I wanted to ask Nicole how she's leaning into these trends and how the last two years have changed fine jewelry as a whole. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. What was your experience? Are are folks buying your fine jewelry? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, fine jewelry luckily was a category that didn't go away during the pandemic. It maybe shifted a little. People, instead of having weddings, were heavily getting engaged. So we saw a big uptick during the peak of the pandemic for engagement rings because couples were stuck home together having those conversations. Um, And now, as you said, it's the year of the wedding. So we are seeing a ton of wedding band sales. So it's definitely shifting what people are focusing on, depending on, you know, what's happening specifically during the pandemic. But people always get engaged. People always get married. So we were in a pretty good place to weather the storm. Yes. And speaking of kind of uh, being weathering the storm, am I correct? You're a digitally native company. Um, Did this, I mean, I would think that this played to your advantage going in, whereas probably other jewelry brands had to figure this out. (laughs) Yes, we were really lucky to already be a digitally native brand, as you said. And in the fine jewelry space, that's actually quite rare. It's a very, very old industry. And with that comes a lot of antiquated practices, which is you know, part of the reason I started the company in the first place, which I'm sure we'll cover in a bit. But when it came to the pandemic, we have a huge e-commerce site where we sell fine jewelry starting at $70, going up to tens of thousands. And we already worked with so many bridal clients remotely anyway, because we're located in New York City and we have a pretty big brand presence. So whenever clients wanted a ring concierge engagement ring and weren't in New York, we already worked with them remotely. So we already had that system down pat and the ability to sell diamonds via photos and videos. So when everybody had to shut down in New York City, we were able to keep selling and keep operating. And we really did, we shifted our operational practices a lot, but from a sales standpoint, we didn't miss anything, which was incredible. And if anything, we really were able to take advantage of that shutdown period because we had a lot less competition. Yes. Let's circle back. 2013, when you started the business, what was this white space that you saw um, and yeah, other than maybe doing it more in a more modern, um, direct online way? So I was in fashion before this. I had no experience in jewelry. I never even thought about it as an industry to work in. I always loved jewelry. I was you know, growing up the the girl that had on a hundred plastic beaded necklaces. But, you know, for most women in their twenties and even thirties, purchasing fine jewelry didn't really seem like an option. It's a pretty unobtainable category in most people's mind. So my first real experience shopping for it was when I was ready to get engaged. I was 26. We were, my now husband and I were navigating the New York City Diamond District. And it's, if you've ever walked up and down that street, it's a very strange old school atmosphere. You're kind of being heckled, um, you know, by all these men standing on the street. Are you buying? Are you selling? You have no idea. Should I step foot in these stores? Can I trust them? But you've heard that's where you get the best deal. 
And then we also went into stores like Tiffany's and Harry Winston, you know, like, oh, let's just see, quickly realizing we could afford absolutely nothing, you know, lovely customer experience, but we couldn't shop at those stores. And there were very, very few online options. Even though shopping online had become a really important thing when it came to apparel, the jewelry industry really hadn't gotten on board with this yet. So I saw this huge opportunity, this big white space for a millennial-focused fine jewelry company, specifically focusing on bridal, since that's the area I had, you know, was personally shopping that understood what millennial women wanted and how they wanted to shop. And that's when I started to create this concept and idea of Ring Concierge. Yes. I feel like you're also bringing early on before everybody was buzzing about transparency. There's this, it's very like, I don't know, smoke and mirrors in terms of how much you're supposed to, how much a ring costs. Did you always put the pricing out depending on the size of the diamond or or what do people want to know, I guess? Let's start pricing. Was that stated? So I use social media pretty early on. And the advantage of social media, I mean, there's plenty of advantages, but one of the advantages was you get real-time feedback from customers. And they were constantly asking me, well, okay, that's a really pretty ring you just posted, but what does it cost? Because to your point, it's so opaque. You have no idea if you're looking at something that's $5,000 or $50,000, unless you're in the industry. So I started posting prices more regularly and talking about the differences that color and clarity make on pricing. And I would talk about it in stories and we still do. It's a very regular part of our content because it really increased transparency and also helped people get an idea and set the tone for what they might want to spend to get the diamond, the look that they're hoping to get with their engagement ring. Yeah. And you said images and video. Was that the out of the gate plan? I know you do try at home now, but um, is that, did that come later on? It did come later on. So we do have a large showroom in New York City and I started in New York. So my initial clients, of course, were in New York City and it was all in person. And then as word of mouth started to spread, I was getting clients that were in LA and Chicago and I wanted to be able to work with them still. And they really wanted a ring concierge ring because they had heard great things from their friend. So that's when I started to figure out the best way to give them that same experience, but remotely. And so taking pictures of diamonds that were options for them on my hand rather than just, you know, product shots was step one. So they can actually have a sense of scale. Oh, this is what this looks like on a hand, not just sitting on a table and just little things like that. Again, rethinking kind of how millennials actually want to shop and creating an experience remotely that was very in line with this experience they would get in our showroom. And so we've perfected that over the years. And right now, our revenue remote versus in-person for bridal is actually 50-50. So we're doing a pretty huge remote business. That's great. And it's just the one showroom. Yeah. And are you looking to open more maybe on the West Coast? Yes. So we have one bridal showroom. It's in Midtown Manhattan. And we have one retail location for the fine jewelry, which is down in the West Village. Both, you know, very successful. The store we opened for the fine jewelry in November and it is blowing up. So we're very excited about that. So we are certainly looking at at expansion. We're looking at other cities within the U.S. that we already have large amounts of clientele in based on our e-com sales. 
we're looking at Chicago, we're looking at LA. We know we want to have coastal presence. We know we want to have presence in the major metropolitan areas. And especially important for bridal because it is such a big purchase. And as much as we do a humongous remote business, there are still so many people that cannot pull that trigger unless they see the diamond in person. And I get that. And so how do we reach these customers? People are willing to travel up to a certain amount. You know, if you're in San Francisco, you'll go to LA to look at a diamond, but you might not fly all the way to New York City. So thinking through that when it comes to our retail location strategy. Yeah, that makes great sense. You mentioned not having worked in the, worked in the bridal, no, the, the diamond or jewelry business before. I have a note here that you were at Macy's and Bloomingdale's product development, retail buying. How did you even, I guess, go about, I want to start this business? Was it about linking with experts in the space, um, jewelry designers? Who were the first, I guess, partners for you? Yeah, I had no experience to your point. And I actually think that benefited me because the industry has such an old mindset because it's all family run. So it's typically fathers passing down their businesses to their sons and they've never done anything but sell jewelry or diamonds. So there wasn't usually a lot of change over the years. So I came in with a fashion retail background, something, you know, much more commercial and scalable. You know, I was in e-com at Bloomingdale's, so really understanding how that worked. So when I started, I perhaps was very naive, but it, again, I think it really worked to my advantage. I just came in and said, okay, here's what I think it should look like, not understanding at all how the industry worked. So finding partners in the beginning was definitely a challenge for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, who can I trust? Who do I think is going to understand my vision. I very quickly realized women did not have a big place in this industry, certainly not when it came to a more senior position and getting these diamond dealers and these older men to take me seriously and actually work with me was certainly a challenge. But there are there are certainly still people in the industry that are a little bit more modern thinking. And I found a few people I partnered with on the diamond side who really educated me and kind of took me under their wing and they were a little younger and I was like, okay, I think they understand the importance of e-com. I, they understand the importance of Instagram. And we really unofficially partnered for those beginning years and, you know, split profits. And I just absorbed everything I could from them and tried to understand this weird, weird diamond industry and how to navigate it. And it took a while. It definitely took a while to learn how to do it effectively. Yeah. And no funding out of the gate, right? No funding out of the gate and no funding um, at all at, over the course of nine years. We've been self-funded, which is great. We I was profitable starting year one, and we've been profitable every year since. We are very fiscally conservative. We are very thoughtful in how we invest in what we, you know, areas we expand in to make sure that we can remain self-funded because it's pretty important to me to have that autonomy and be able to make decisions that are best for the business and most importantly, best for our customers and followers rather than just scaling at all costs or figuring out how to become desirable enough to exit to a strategic buyer. You know, those things don't really matter to me. What matters to me is growing a healthy, sustainable business that our customers will always want to shop at. I love that. So when it comes to, I would think that as more uh, jewelry brands join you online and and other, yeah, the other players enter the space, um, that the digital 
advertising. Um, the, the, the costs are, are skyrocketing. I'm sure it's very competitive there. Um, what's been your approach there? So we are very lucky to have a large organic following on Instagram. We have about a half a million followers, and that is still our largest customer acquisition strategy is just organic followers. And we get that through influencers and gifting and just, you know, trying to navigate the algorithms, which constantly change. That's not always the best strategy, but we definitely have a large paid budget in terms of Instagram and Facebook ads. Luckily we have a high price point. So we can afford to spend a couple hundred dollars to acquire that first customer and still be profitable or not in the red on our first order. You know, we're not selling a $30 t-shirt. We're selling items that are in the hundreds of dollars. So we can afford to spend a little bit more on paid. But even with that, we do try to be very thoughtful and always see an immediate return. I don't like to take a risk because we're self-funded and say, okay, we're going to spend $5 million on advertising. And if we don't really see a return on that this year, that's okay. That's not how we operate. We like to see immediate returns. Anything that is immediately effective, we'll pivot and pour more into that. And anything that is slow or not really working, we'll stop. And we're constantly reevaluating where we should be spending our ad dollars. Okay, great. Tell me about influencers and are you gifting? I think that it's not as easy. Like you said, you're a high, high cost uh, product. Um, are, are you gifting left and right? Does it, are you, um, I, I would think more selective, but anyway, what's been your approach? It's exactly that. We're selective. So we would love to gift everybody and anybody because influencers can be so effective. But to your point, our product is very expensive. So we can't just give out diamonds and gold (laughs) jewelry to every person that reaches out. We try to find people who have really like audiences in the sense that they might be a demographic that can afford our jewelry. Perhaps, you know, they're in their thirties rather than in their early twenties and thinking about it that way. And we do tests and not everybody works. We've certainly gifted influencers and, you know, there goes $5,000. We didn't see anything. And then we've gifted perhaps someone with a smaller following, but they're just really, really engaged and saw a huge return. So we're constantly testing, but because we are such, such, have such a heavy Instagram presence, gifting to influencers is a large part of our um, a large part of our strategy. Okay, great. What percentage of your company is bridal versus kind of the more fashion pieces? Fifty percent. Our revenue is split about fifty fifty between bridal and the fine jewelry department. Got it. Are you finding um, that more women are buying fine jewelry for themselves? Like, what are you seeing there? Yes. And I'm so glad you asked because this is something that's really important to us and something that is a big differentiator. Because we are a woman founded and run company, we like to speak to the women directly. At the end of the day, that's the end user. They're the person actually wearing it. And traditionally, especially you know, leading up to this decade, women did not buy their own jewelry. It was always a gift from a man. And we are really trying to change that narrative treat yourself with jewelry. Don't wait around for it to be a gift. Don't ask permission. You know, if you've been eyeing a bangle, get it. You're going to wear it every day. You're not going to regret it. It's a better investment than a handbag. So we're really big on pushing and trying to empower women to purchase purchase themselves fine jewelry and completely removing that mindset that it only can be given as a gift. Yes. Are there shopping trends that are surprising you? I've, I've been seeing on TikTok like the idea of a tennis necklace like catching on among these young folks. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, can you afford that? But anyway, what are you seeing? 
we are seeing a huge trend towards tennis necklaces. I think it's because we were all cooped up for two years during the pandemic wearing sweatpants and had nowhere to go. And now we're finally out and about in the world and people are wanting to wear all this jewelry that they've been shopping for when they were stuck at home and just wear all of these nicer pieces, their nicer handbags, their high heels, because we're finally feeling like we're getting back to normal life. And so with that, we are seeing a huge trend of more traditional, traditionally worn statement pieces like a tennis necklace, but being worn casually every day, layered with other gold necklaces, just with a t-shirt and jeans. People are wearing them to brunch, which is also really exciting because you know they're expensive. And to have this $6,000 piece that just sits in your closet and you only wear it once a year to a wedding doesn't make a ton of sense. Why not get more use out of it? Why not wear it every day? Such a fun trend. Well, I hear a lot about we talk a lot about diamonds on on glossy. Um, whether you know, there's the do I buy? Uh, I guess natural versus lab grown. Do I buy? Are are is this company like ethically sourced? Uh, ethically sourced diamonds. Um, tell me about. I guess what your customer wants to know. What you have to say. Um, and and prove what you have to prove to get their business. So. We don't get as many questions as you would think about that, but we are a company that only sells ethically sourced diamonds. That's really important to us. All of our diamonds follow the Kimberly process, which is a certification that really makes sure diamonds don't come from a conflict zone. And any of our bridal rings, are they come with a GIA certificate. And GIA is you know, the best certificate you can get with a diamond and they don't even certify conflict diamonds. So we're really pretty strict about that piece of it, that all of our diamonds are conflict free. And then when it comes to the lab grown versus natural diamonds, this is a really interesting topic that we are talking more and more about because the demand for lab grown is increasing. And it's mostly because they cost significantly less than a natural diamond. It's a little bit less about environmental impact because transparently speaking, they actually have a fairly large um, CO2 footprint. So there is kind of an argument for either side, mind versus lab. Nothing's perfect, unfortunately, in the world, but people are really leaning towards them because you can get a much larger diamond for a much lower price. So if you don't care as much about the history and you don't mind that it's not thousands of years old and extremely rare, which certainly is a big appeal for a a mined diamond, then a lab grown might be a good option for you if you just want to get the biggest bang for your buck. But with that being said, they're perhaps not the wisest investment because their prices have been dropping steadily because The more and more companies are figuring out how to make them, the more supply is going up, therefore decreasing the price. Whereas mine diamonds have a finite supply and historically speaking, year over year, their prices do tend to increase. So if you're thinking about it in terms of financial longevity, I wouldn't recommend a lab grown. But if you just say, I don't care, I just want the biggest diamond I can get, then it's a good option for you. That makes great sense. So as there are more options beyond like, the the cut and the color and all of that uh, to lab grown to to um I don't know proven ethically sourced all of these things are more couples doing the, making these decisions together has that always been the case or yeah are guys going it alone 
So most of our clients start as a couple, which we really love. And I think a piece of that is because we are really trying to empower women to be more involved when it comes to jewelry. And typically we will see a couple comes in together for the initial appointment or the initial phone call with one of our sales team members. And they really talk about preferences. You know, she'll say, this is the shape I like. This is the setting I like. Setting the tone, letting our sales team understand where she wants to go with the design. And then from there, typically she'll drop out and her partner will take over and select this specific diamond. So there is still an element of surprise. That's the majority of what we're seeing with our couples. Okay, great. Well, I'm circling back to the marketing element. Uh, We talked a lot about Instagram. Is Pinterest part of your strategy? So we have a really incredible Pinterest following and Pinterest page. We don't do a lot with paid ads and we are exploring that because it does seem like a miss because so many brides use Pinterest when they're creating their mood boards and figuring out what vendors they want to work with and, you know, deciding on their bouquet flowers. So I think there's probably a pretty large opportunity when it comes to wedding band advertisements on Pinterest. We're just not really doing much there yet. Yes. Well, in terms of meeting the bride where she is, she's on Pinterest. Um, I know back in the day, she used to be like shopping, I don't know, the bridal magazines and she was at the bridal markets or whatever they're called, the shows. Um, is there any any other, um, I guess, outside of the box, uh, particular to the bridal industry, um, I guess, efforts that you're doing there? We're doing a lot more with podcasts, actually. Oh, great. Um, hey. Yeah, we're finding brides, just like everybody else, are listening to podcasts and starting to think about how can we partner with different people to talk about really interesting topics like, you know, engagement ring buying 101 or which wedding band is best for your bridal style. So that is definitely another avenue we're starting to explore that we didn't do much with pre-pandemic. Great. In terms of content, like even if she's looking at your Instagram, um, I mean, is it a large investment to pull off this like fairy tale look that (laughs) somebody will want to gravitate toward and say, I want that to be me. Uh, Talk to me about, yeah, I I guess uh, meeting them, meeting their expectations, um, putting on a fairy tale, I guess. Does it is it necessary? Does it necessitate that? <laughs> I think Instagram definitely puts the pressure on to get a larger looking ring. We definitely feel that when we're working with our clients. They know it's going to get posted. They want it to look large. But with that being said, you know, budgets are a real thing. Most people have one. So we specialize in working with clients to maximize their budget in ways that you can actually see it. So let's say you have $20,000 to spend and you want the biggest look possible. We're going to figure out how you can drop down in color and how you can drop down in clarity just low enough so it doesn't start to become obvious, but so you can allocate the majority of your budget towards carat weight, which is really what people care about and what's most visible. So at the end of the day, as long as your diamond sparkles and is beautiful and appears white and clean and is in a gorgeous setting you're going to be in love with your ring. And it doesn't really matter that the paperwork says it's not a perfectly flawless, colorless diamond. Yes. I've been hearing a lot of brands telling me they're opening up stores in the West Village. What's happening there? Uh, First of all, and what's necessary for um, the in-store experience to bring people into stores? Is it all about that try-on and and that'll do it? I think 
customers have been craving something in person and experiential because of the shutdown and because we were just shopping online for two years. So we opened a store in the West Village this fall. We picked the West Village because of Bleecker Street. It's such a good, fun shopping street. Very curated brands that have a similar, you know, seemingly demographic to ours and also capturing that post-brunch crowd on Sunday. So maybe they've had a few drinks and they're (laughs) feeling a little more flexible with their wallets. And we don't have a huge experiential component to the store. It's something we're thinking through. I think people just want to shop in person. It's just the traditional way to buy. People have been missing that. Come in with your girlfriends, try things on, chat with a sales associate, see things in person versus pictures. That's really what people have been craving. And yes, we do have an element of being able to try on some of the bridal styles in a more casual way. It's you know low pressure. You're just there for fun. But really, the majority of people are going there to to truly shop for the fine jewelry, even though it's all available on the website. Yeah. I didn't even address when you were talking about shopping online. I talked about the try at home kind of box, but is virtual try on, is that happening? Yes, definitely. And because all of our bridal rings are so custom where you really pick your diamond and your setting, it's hard to do that in a try on model. It's much better to just get pictures from your sales associate see the diamonds specifically, understand what's so special about each one, and then they'll walk through what settings are most flattering on your hand. So this whole virtual remote appointment is still really, really the best way to do it if you're not able to come into our showroom in New York City. That makes sense. So moving forward, you mentioned opening more stores, eyeing other locations. Um, What else does growth look like for you? Is it, um, yeah, about markets beyond the States? Is it new categories? So yes to everything, but we still feel that we have a ton of opportunity within the U.S. It's about a $100 billion industry, the fine jewelry industry. So it's really large, but it's also very, very fragmented. There's a few key players at the top that make up, you know, the top 10% of the industry. So it's Signet, who owns like K's and Jared's and some of those you know, mall brands. And then there's Tiffany's, they have 2% of the market share and Blue Nile, which is an online, you know, pretty impersonal website. They have 1% of the market share and then that's it. And then it just completely fragments into these mom and pops. So there is a humongous opportunity for a brand like ours to take up much more of that market share and be very focused on millennials and Gen Z because, you know, Gen Z is Coming up when it comes to bridal, they're only a few years away from starting to think about rings and creating this incredible, transparent, on-trend, accessible fine jewelry brand for those generations. It does not exist right now. It really doesn't, especially not in an omni-channel way, especially not when you're talking about utilizing social media. So our big focus over the next five years is to capture that market share within the U.S. and expand upon what we're already really, really good at and not worry too much about trying to spread ourselves too thin with other categories or with international. Because we have laid out a plan and we're pretty confident that we can get to be one of the largest privately owned jewelry companies in the U.S. within the next five years, if not the largest. Oh, fantastic. Do you have specific goals around your five-year plan? I do. I'm probably not going to share revenue numbers, but they're very, very large. Um, (laughs) But it definitely involves 
elevating the brand to a level that starts to feel a little bit more like a heritage brand, increasing that desirability. How can we be the Tiffany's of our generation? You know, what Tiffany's used to be in the 90s and early 2000s, everybody wanted a blue box. Everybody wanted that sterling silver bracelet. How do we become that level of desirable? But the main difference would be is that we're actually obtainable. You know, we don't have 300% markups. We have very, very competitive pricing. So unlike Tiffany's, you could actually buy ring concierge jewelry. And using that strategy to become this household name and then really using technology and data to start to think through how do we scale? How do we expand? How do we get in front of everybody? And then this blended retail strategy about, you know, how many cities do we really need to be in? We know we don't need to be everywhere. We know we don't need to be Jared's and be in every single mall. How many stores does it take to touch all the different points in America to capture the audience? So that's how we're thinking about it. Yes. Well, you mentioned some of the um, competitors that are very impersonal and also the, the mom and pop shops, which um, I would think they, they have a next level, maybe not compared to you, but just like great customer service in terms of, yes, personalized, um, personalized touch. Tell me about your Custom, customer service, um, the importance of providing that that personal experience, and also training or finding the people who can pull that off on your behalf in your stores and on your site? Yes, great question. We have a huge focus this year on expanding our you know, clienteling and customer care experience. We already have an incredible customer care team. We have one that's dedicated just to all of the fine jewelry shoppers on the website. And then if you shop engagement rings, you're assigned a one-on-one diamond expert that really handholds you. So that experience is incredible. But how do you scale that? And then to your question, how do you provide that experience the local jeweler is providing, but perhaps remotely? So we are trying to think through that. And there are a lot of ways, you know, it, it's everything from what is your return policy to your service packages if someone needs a repair to how easy it is to contact you. Definitely working through all of that to get it to the level where people are as comfortable, if not more comfortable, shopping with us than they would just going to their local jewelry store. Because we already know that we have, you know, not to toot our own horns, we know we have better styles. We know we have a a broader access to diamonds. We know we offer so much more when it comes to the product and the pricing than the local jeweler offers. And then how do we just take it that one step further where we can get that comfort level there? So that is a big part of our five-year strategy because we know that's going to be necessary when talking about capturing market share, but we think very, very doable. And also when it comes to Gen Z, they start to care less and less about in-person versus online. You know, they're very comfortable shopping online. So we don't actually anticipate it being as big of a challenge for that generation as it is right now for millennials and boomers. Yeah. I noticed you had a, a loyalty program. How does that work? We have a loyalty program. We're actually in the process of revamping it. It's going to be incredible. Like think Sephora level points and rewards. It's going to be the most incredible loyalty program and it does not exist right now in fine jewelry at all. So we know we're going to be at the forefront of that. Right now, we definitely have you earn points every time you shop with us. You can redeem them for coupon codes, but we are going to take it to like the most incredible loyalty program you've ever seen. We're so excited about it. It's probably a few months from launching. 
Great. Well, what challenges have you experienced in terms of the supply chain? Is that your current biggest challenge, I would say? It is definitely a big challenge right now. And just like every other industry, major supply chain issues really resulting in higher prices and in ways we can't control. We always try to eat as much of it as we can so we don't have to raise retail prices. But, you know, like everybody else out there, it gets to a point where you have no choice and you've got to raise prices. The diamond supply chain is a bit of a mess. Prices are up about 25% over pre-COVID, which as a percentage doesn't sound too terrible. But when you start to think about what that means in dollars for such a high ticket item, it's pretty, it's a pretty high jump, you know, to give you an idea, a two carat GVS round, which is near colorless, very slightly included. So a pretty average color clarity combination, a two carat round has gone up $10,000 retail over, (laughs) over January, 2020. So It's tough. It's tough on the consumer. We try to do everything we can to keep our margins tight for them. But obviously, when it comes to mining and cutting and polishing these diamonds, it's also labor intensive. And how do you do that when there's shutdowns and, you know, inability to ship things the way we used to? So we're trying to navigate that. We are hoping it gets better in about a year from now. But I think throughout the rest of this year, it's going to remain the way it's been operating the past few years. And gold prices are up. Gold prices have been up since the beginning of the pandemic because people started to buy gold as a way to diversify out of whatever currency they were in. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about gold prices being up. So again, we do what we can to keep our margins tight, You know, buy in bulk where we can and negotiate discounts with our suppliers, but there's only so much you can do when it comes to gold and diamond prices. For sure. Well, that will have an impact on on the space for quite a while, I'm, like you said. Um, and also, you know, we're in this roaring 20s, buy jewelry, go crazy. <laughs> and also the, the definition of luxury I'm hearing, I mean, it's just changing. Gen Z is driving that. Um, what do you think the last two years, like how is this going to impact your world um, for the next, like you said, five years, maybe 10 years? Um, it's a new modern <laughs> jewelry space. I don't know. What, what's the impact of the pandemic? I actually think we're walking out of the pandemic in a really advantageous position. We were so lucky to already be digitally native and already have an incredible e-commerce site. And even more so than before the pandemic, People are comfortable shopping online for fine jewelry now because they've had no choice over the past two years. So that really helps with our ability to scale because if you're in an industry that can only operate off of in-person sales, it's really tough to scale. So that's been great for us. And I think, you know, it's not the nicest thing to say, but not all of our competition kind of made it through the pandemic. And There's this probably new wave in thinking in this industry about, okay, how do we need to operate that's a little bit more modern? And we're certainly at the forefront of that. So I think we got very, very lucky. And a lot of it has to do with having the most incredible team that are so hardworking and pivoted one million times over the past two years to keep things running. But we're really walking out of this pandemic in a pretty great place. Great. You mentioned being in the Upper East Side. Are you guys working from home? We are not working from home. I am working from home today because I was traveling all weekend and I have a one-year-old and I wanted to see her today. I'm traveling again next weekend. But no, we are fully back up and running 
in our Midtown office. We have a team of 35 women. We are super proud to be, you know, a woman-run and woman-operated company. And we are all back in the office because we have a tangible good and it's really, really hard not to be in to be there in person. <laughs> right on. You do men's, I would assume, wedding bands or any other men's jewelry. Absolutely. We do wedding bands. We also have on the website bracelets and cufflinks and all the things men could possibly want. Of course, they don't make up a very large percentage of our business because men don't purchase as much jewelry, but we offer everything. We really, you can come to us for nearly anything in the fine jewelry space and we offer it. And if we don't offer it, maybe we can make it, you know? So we're kind of a one-stop shop. Yes. As you are working from home, are you blinged out? What, what jewelry are we, wear, we wearing today? <laughs> so you can't see them because I have <laughs> earphones in, but I always wear diamond studs no matter what. That's kind of my one thing. You throw it in and you just feel put together. You can be wearing sweatpants, which I hate, hate to admit I'm wearing right now on my bottom half. But if you have diamond studs in your ears, you look beautiful. That's my strategy to get through life. (laughs) I would agree with that. Oh my gosh. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for being here. This was fantastic. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the Glossy Podcast. See you next week.